The scene is a church camp in Pennsylvania, about 100 kids, various counselors. Jim is the camp director and Frank the maintenance director, and they've been away from camp on business. Today, they return to camp to find everyone gone, everyone gone. There's no camp counselors anywhere. There's no campers anywhere. Empty kayaks are floating out in the lake. The computer is left on, and it looks like someone stopped typing mid-sentence. But the strangest thing of all is the clothes. Everywhere they look, there's small piles of clothes, and it looks as if the wearers of the clothes have evaporated into thin air. Jim and Frank don't know what to think. Though neither of them mention it, they're both thinking rapture. That word is going through their minds. A, a common belief that the next event on the biblical timeline will be Christian believers and resurrected believers rising in the clouds to meet the Lord. Then out of the woods, they see a lone camper crying. A boy who's not yet made a commitment to Christ. Now, Jim and Frank are a bit worried because if the rapture, if the rapture has occurred, that it would make sense that this boy is still around. To calm their fears, uh, Jim calls his wife, and his secretary reports in puzzled tones that she had been in the office just moments ago, but is no longer there. Now the men are very concerned. After an hour and uh, after a half hour of intense searching throughout the camp, from the dining hall comes the sound of the camp bell, and at that sound, kids come pouring out from the woods and everywhere. Soon, Jim and Frank are surrounded by the many dozens of elated junior high campers. Turns out that the camp counselors had planned this whole trick for Jim and, Jim and Frank. They set up the camp to make it look like everyone had slain disappeared, and then all the camp counselors hid around in the woods and waited for Jim and Frank to return. It was a trick. It was a good one, one that Jim and Frank would always remember. There's a lot we don't know about the future. Even what we do know isn't always sure. Hopefully you've all registered to vote next Tuesday. Wouldn't we like to know the future? What the end holds for us? Fortunately, I do, and I'm here to tell you. But first, let's ask God to bless us. Father, we're here to worship you. We thank you for a free country where we can join together in a time of teaching and have you fill our hearts and minds. We pray that you would make us receptive to the word and all that you have for us. In your name we pray, amen. amen. Thank you, it's a real privilege and, and pleasure to, to be here with you. I uh, know many of you uh, personally and others I've only seen occasionally, but I'm looking forward to seeing each and every one of you in heaven at some point in the future in heaven. This is the final session of our series called Dwell. Last week we looked at the theology of work and now in the final week, our focus is dwelling returns. Guess I'll have to answer the question that you all must be asking yourselves right now, where did dwelling go if it has to return? Our future is bright and I'm filled with hope. Hope that, as I said, I look forward to seeing each of you in heaven, but also many people that have gone ahead of us that are in heaven right now waiting for us. Most recently, my father went there. It's hard to believe that it's been a year and a week since my mom and younger sister and brother traveled to Erie, Pennsylvania. It's my mom's hometown, and there we put to rest the spacesuit that my dad wore these 90-some years that he was on the earth. His relocation to heaven is on my mind as we look at the final message in our sermon series, Dwelling Returns. We are looking at God's ultimate plan to dwell with his people 
for all of eternity. Underlying the teaching of the series has always been the question, why exactly did God create man? What was the purpose? Well, it's very simple because it says in the Bible that we're created for God's pleasure, for his glory. Isaiah 43, 7, there the prophet says, bring all who claim me as their God, for I have made them for my glory. It was I who created them. In Revelation chapter 4, verse 11, it says, you are worthy, our Lord and God, to receive the glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they were created and have their being. God created us, all of us, as special beings, a unique place in his creation. If you think about it, animals are physical beings but have no soul. Angels have a spiritual soul but no physical being. But man was created with both. Man has both a physical presence and a spiritual being, one that will last for eternity and enable us to worship God, to fellowship with him, to dwell with God forever. As we've done before, during the series, we'll look at God's word from Genesis to Revelation. Look at the road, the path that God has taken to maintain his relationship with us. Not an easy road. For reasons that you'll see, God is always working, and that path is not always straight. It has twists and turns, and sometimes I marvel at God's patience with us. But his desire is to dwell with us. We start in the garden with Adam and Eve. They knew the righteousness of God and they were in perfect harmony with him. They walked with God. They knew him in a way that we cannot begin to understand. God dwelt with them and they shared intimacy with God, way beyond our imagination. We catch a glimpse of this in the scripture Genesis 3.8. It says that when the cold evening breezes were blowing, the man and his wife heard the Lord walking about in the garden. Now stop and think about this. The fellowship with God, their creator, must have been a common practice. We're not sure how. It doesn't give us the details, but Adam and Eve were created unique. They were unique beings created to interact with a holy God. And they did this on a daily basis, it seems. Adam and Eve walked and talked with God. Now, that last sentence of the verse talks about them hiding away from the Lord among the trees. That communion was broken by sin. We looked at it in our series. Man could no longer dwell with God, and this is a significant point in this story. That communion, that relationship was broken. As we've looked at in the previous sermons in our series, sin broke our relationship with a pure and almighty God. His mercy and his kindness immediately was broken, yet God, uh, God through his, immerse, his mercy and kindness, immediately began to work to reestablish that dwelling with, with man. You may recall in chapter three of that, uh, uh, a little bit further along in that chapter, God is speaking to Adam and Eve in verse 15. And he says, I will cause hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. This is the first promise of the Messiah. God had everything planned out for us as he always does. Note that Jesus here is referred to as fruit of the woman or her offspring. A very uncommon phrase. Usually the offspring is written as, as of being of the man, his offspring, but not in a special circumstance. 
This is a prophecy of the coming Messiah, one that God planned from the very beginning, knowing that man would fall away. So even though Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, God's desire is to dwell with us. In fact, the first main point here is that God desires to dwell with his people, always has, and always will. And he has said that over and over again. Did you know that Job is the oldest book in the Bible? Texts and places mentioned in Job confirm this. In fact, during this time of history, the family head was also the spiritual leader. There was no temple. Job was a good man, an upstanding and righteous man. And yet Satan asked God to, uh, to test him. God relents. Immediately, all 10 of his kids are killed. All of his possessions are gone and lost. Devastating. Interestingly, Satan leave jo leaves Job's wife. Still trying to understand exactly what that means. Everything else is gone, but his wife still stays. In fact, at one point in the scripture, she just tells him, just curse God and die. Obviously, she's dealing with the loss of 10 kids as well. But through it all, Job remains faithful to God. Now, Job does demand a full explanation from God. And God simply says, Job, trust me. Ask him to trust his wisdom, trust his character. And so Job re responds with humility and with repentance. If anything, Job's sin is that of really expecting too little from God. The greatness of his God as far surpasses all that Job could originally have thought. God restored all that Job had lost, gave Job twice as much in his old age as he had before. The Lord blessed him with a long life and seven more sons and three more daughters. You see, the original 10 kids were in heaven and the additional 10 kids were here for him now. We see Job's faith in God and the future that Job had hope of written in the 19th chapter of Job. At verse 25, he says, But as for me, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he will stand upon the earth at last. And after my body is decayed, yet in my body I will see God. I will see him for myself. Yes, I will see him with my own eyes. I've, I am overwhelmed at this thought. A contemporary of Job was a heathen living in, living in the home of his idol worshiper father in the land of Ur. His name was Abram. God renamed Abram, Abraham, and told him to leave his father's household, travel to a new land, a promised land that God had for him. So we understand, I guess, that Abraham was not a Jew, at least not when called. Yet God created a nation of his chosen people through Abraham and his own son, Isaac. It was Abraham's grandson, Jacob, that had 12 sons who became the heads of 12 tribes of Israel. Even though the family fled to Egypt and survived a famine there, God reassured Jacob, promising him to make his family a great nation and to bring him out of Egypt back to the promised land. According to God's promise, his nation would be mighty and great, and his family did prosper and return to the promised land. We could spend hours, but we won't. But we could spend hours looking at the various ways God has cared for his chosen people of Israel. And how by the hand of, Joseph, uh, of Moses, he brought them out of the land of Egypt. 
Take a moment and just imagine yourself there as one of the Israelites in the desert after leaving Egypt, camping in your tent. You, see, you saw the Red Sea part right in front of you and then close in and drown the entire Egyptian army that had been chasing you. And now the sun is setting and you see up in the sky over the tabernacle, the pillar of cloud now turning into a pillar of fire. All this you see right out of your tent flap. The tribe faces the tabernacle. All the tribes face the tabernacle. And they're arranged like a cross. Three tribes to the north, three to the south, three on the east, and three on the west. And you can see that pillar of fire and cloud and know that God's presence is right there over the tabernacle with you. Moses wrote of God's desire to, to be with his people in Exodus 29. In verse 45, we read, then I will live among the people of Israel and be their God. And they will know that I am the Lord their God. I am the one that brought them out of the land of Egypt so I could live among them. I am the Lord their God. Clearly God is striving to be with his people. And this brings us to the second main point, which is that over and over again, God has showed his intentions for Israel. Very lucky people. Yeah, what happened to him? Well, the adults in the wilderness did not have faith that God would bring them into the promised land, and so they ended up dying off, wandering. Their children, the children of the people that left Egypt, were the ones that took possession of the promised land. When the people of Israel get there, things are not exactly going well for them. We read in Judges 21, 25, that in those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. Pretty harsh words. What's interesting is that in three other locations of just this one small book of Judges, we read similar words. Four places it's written almost as an apology to explain the horrendous acts that the quote-unquote people of God have carried on. So the people decide that they want a king. Forgetting, I guess, that the creator of the universe is their king and ruler, a true theocracy. So God relents. He warns them about what having a king will mean, but the people want a king anyway. They want a leader who will exhibit a certain magnificence, someone who could be a celebrity king, showing off their vanity and power. God permitted Saul to be their first king. What a failure. He did not work with God to defeat the Philistines, which was one of the key roles for the people to eventually root out all the people and take possession entirely of the promised land. So on the heels of Saul, we have another king, King David, described in the Bible, in other words, by God's own words, as a man after God's heart. Not at all perfect, but a man who listened to God and sought to worship him a shepherd in the, in the desert writing psalms in worship to God. His heart filled with praises. A successful king, one who dealt with the Philistines, but one that worshiped God and had his heart. Sometimes we miss just how much King David believed and looked forward to heaven. In a prayer of David captured in Psalm 17, he seeks God, prays to God for a number of things, including protection from and deliverance over his enemies. 
But he also looks forward in verse 15 to heaven. In fact, he says, because I am righteous, I see you. When I awake, I see you face to face and will be satisfied. To David, full satisfaction in this life would come on the day in the next life when he woke and beholds God face to face in fellowship and with he himself being a new being like God. Heaven's a real thing for David. We also see this in the death of his infant son. You may recall that David had an adulterous affair with Bathsheba and murders her husband Uriah. And a son is born and, and probably lives no more than about a week and then dies. David's advisors are faced with the difficult task of telling the king that his infant son is dead. So they break the news to him. And we pick up the story in verse 20 of, Psalm, of 2 Samuel 12, which says, Then David got up from the ground, washed himself, put on lotions, changed his clothes, and went to the temple and worshipped the Lord. After that, he returned to the palace, was served food, and ate. His advisors were amazed. We don't understand you, they told him. While the child was living, you wept and refused to eat. But now the child is dead, you stopped. You stopped your mourning and are eating again. David replied, I fasted and wept when the child was alive. For I said, perhaps the Lord will be gracious to me and let the child live. But why should I fast when he is dead? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him one day, but he cannot return to me. We see here the strong belief and acknowledgement that David knows as a child is waiting for him in heaven. We are told that David had in his heart the desire to build a permanent dwelling for God, a temple. God let him assemble the materials, but did not actually allow him to participate in the construction. It would be for his son, the future king, Solomon, to complete this temple, this place for God to dwell with him. So Solomon builds a temple and it's glorious. It's filled with gold leaf and plating inside. In fact, the best estimates of the biblical description is that 3,000 tons of gold, 3,000 tons of gold are used in the temple's construction. During the dedication of the temple, captured in 1 Kings chapter 8, we read in verse 10 and 11 that when the priests came out of the holy place, a thick cloud filled the temple of the Lord. The priests could not continue the service because of the cloud, for the glorious presence of the Lord filled the temple of the Lord. It's said that the brilliance and resplendent presence of God was so intense that the priests could not stand to be in or even look at the temple because God's glory was so extreme and so overpowering. Once again, God is seeking to dwell with his people. And while the scripture speaks of the glory of God filling the temple, this glory does not last in every sense of the word. 931 BC, the kingdom of Israel was split in two. 722, the northern kingdom, is invaded and swept away by the Assyrians. Years later, in 586 BC, Babylon comes in and captures the southern kingdom. 
Prophets warn and call to God over and over again for the people to repent, for the people to come back to God so that he can dwell with them. But as we have seen throughout the history so far, God has not given up on his people. In fact, in Jeremiah 30, we hear God's voice written in verse 18. This is what the Lord says, when I bring Israel home again from captivity and restore their fortunes, Jerusalem will be rebuilt on its ruins and the palace reconstructed as before. There will be joy and songs of thanksgiving and I will multiply my people, not diminish them. I will honor them, not despise them. Their children will prosper as they did long ago. I will establish them as a nation before me. I will punish anyone who hurts them. They will have their own ruler again, and he will come from their own people, and I will invite them to approach, invite him to approach me, says the Lord. For who would come, who would dare to come unless invited? Verse 22 You will be my people, and I will be your God. Over and over again, God seeks to dwell and spend eternity with his people. Yes, the temple was destroyed as, as punishment for the chasing after false idols that Israel was known for, betraying their calling, turning a, their back on God. The book of Ezra begins with a decree. He's in Babylon. And the, the king of Babylon, uh, king of Persia, Cyrus, sets a decree allowing the Jews to return to Jerusalem, to rebuild the temple and rebuild Jerusalem. About 50,000 Jews return. They rebuild the temple, and it's set up again. But note, God never fills that temple like he did Solomon's. Malachi is the last prophet where we hear God's words given to the people, and then there are 400 years of silence. Nothing. The Jews wonder what happened to God. But God's behind the scenes working. God's back there making things and moving things and making it just right. In fact, Paul, in his book of Galatians, in chapter 4, verse 4, talks about the right time. When the right time came, God sent his son, born of a woman, subject to the law. God set the stage for the Messiah. He'd been planning it the whole time. And that was the time for Jesus to come. So we have a third main point, and that is that God specifically came. Specifically came once and for all to be the sacrifice for a sinful man. Think about God giving up his godliness in some respects to be a man, to be a, a creation, to come to this earth, preceded by a forerunner, John the baptizer, to invite Israel to repent. In fact, Matthew 3, 2, John is captured in, his write, in the writing there saying, repent of your sins and turn to God. For the kingdom of heaven is near. Matthew goes on in chapter 4, verse 17, to write about Jesus and says, From then on, repent of your sins and turn to God, for the kingdom of heaven is near. Jesus preaching the same message, preaching the, the reason he came to earth for people to repent, to be part of his family, to dwell with him forever. He acted it out. Every Israelite who worshipped at the temple brought a sacrifice, which was a, simply a foreshadowing of Christ's death on the cross, a sacrifice of a perfect life that would cover our sins, all the sins of the world, by his blood. 
Jesus also knew that a time would come when he would return to heaven, return to his Father. And he promised not to leave us comfortless, but to send the paraclete, to send the one that would walk alongside of us, the Holy Spirit. In Acts 2, Luke is talking about Pentecost, and he makes a very interesting note there about the Holy Spirit. It says, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly, there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then, what looked like flames or tongues of fire appeared and settled on them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking other languages as the Holy Spirit gave him ability. Everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit. As Christians, we have that enormous gift given to us by God of being filled with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is really a down payment, if you will, on the eternity that we have yet to spend with God. So God came to earth, lived as a sinful man, was crucified, dead, and buried, and arose again. And in his resurrected body, no bone, only bone and flesh, no blood, took that to heaven. See, the, the blood had been poured out on our behalf. There's no blood left. Only the resurrected body of bone and flesh now taken to heaven. If you think about it, human DNA now resides in heaven, in the throne room, throne room of God. And we are promised the resurrection and promised new bodies as well. But this has been about Israel. Uh, you might say, hmm, not too many of us here are Jewish. And I know that for a fact. The beauty of all this is that Christ's work is for everyone, each and every one of us. Paul, who was often called the apostle to the Gentiles, wrote of us to the people of Rome. Paul compares Israel to the natural branches of a cultivated olive tree and the Gentile believers, the branches of a wild olive tree. We read about it in Romans 11, verse 16. And since Abraham and other patriarchs were holy, their descendants will be holy, just as the entire batch of dough is holy because the portion given as an offering is holy. For if the roots of the tree are holy, the branches will be too. But some of these branches from Abraham's tree, some of the people of Israel have been broken off. And you, Gentiles, who are branches from a wild olive tree, have been grafted in. So now you also receive the blessing God has promised Abraham and his children, sharing in the rich nourishment from the root of God's special olive tree. See, the natural branches of Israel were broken off in many cases. The wild branches, we, the Gentiles, were grafted in. The Gentiles then have been given a wonderful gift. We're partakers of the promise, inheritors of the very blessings of God's salvation. Which brings us to the end, finally, to Revelation. John, the apostle, literally wrote the Revelation. The book makes it clear that the source of the Revelation is Jesus. In fact, in Greek, it's often called the Apocalypse of John. The word apocalypse meaning the uncovering, unveiling. See, Genesis tells of the origin. 
God's creation and everything that happened at the beginning. And Revelation tells us of the destiny, the future. We typically understand that the book of Revelation is written historically to comfort the beleaguered Jews or beleaguered Christians who existed at that time and underwent terrible persecution at the hands of the Roman emperor. In fact, it's a very, very hard to understand book in many cases. Some people have called it the gospel in visual form because over and over again, John is saying he saw this and then this happened. Eugene Peterson, the best-selling author, now passed on. Eugene Peterson wrote the message, very powerful version of the Bible. He wrote that Revelation has 404 verses. There are 518 references to earlier scripture. If we are not familiar with prevailing, the preceding writing, we are not going to understand Revelations. Revelation, not plural, sorry. No one has any business reading Revelation that has not read the previous 65 books. John did not make up his visions. The Spirit gave him images out of the Scripture, images that he knew so well, and he saw the significance in a fresh way. See, John wrote the book of Revelation partly to point back to God and his promises, but also to point forward to the glorious culmination and the promises of our future found only in Jesus Christ. Heaven is a part of that. In fact, in Revelation, if you read chapter 21, you'll see over and over again various descriptions that John captured of heaven. He begins in first four verses by saying, then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. Not the old ones, a new one. In fact, we talked about this in our sermon series talking about the new creation. A new heaven and new earth. For the old heaven and the old earth had disappeared and the sea was gone. Verse 2. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down from God out of heaven like a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. I heard a loud shout from the throne saying, look, God's home is now among his people and he will live with them and they will be his people. God himself will be with them. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and there will be be no more death or sorrow or crying or pain. All these things are gone forever. The chapter is full of details from John's vision. Near the end of the same chapter, in verses 22 and 23, he wraps up by saying, I saw no temple in the city, for the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. And the city has no need of sun or moon, for the glory of God illuminates the city and the lamb, its light. The The lamb is its light. Sounds awesome. Take a moment, imagine this place that God is preparing for us. Because he said in John 14 that he goes to prepare heaven for us. If he made creation in six days, imagine how long he's spending on heaven getting it ready for us. God will dwell with his people. Heaven is the place. That's the primary purpose of what he's doing there. There'll be no more tears. No more death, no more sorrow. In this life, we have many reasons at times to be sad, but not in heaven. The city is identified with God's people. They or she is looked upon as a bride. Few, if anything, creates a better picture of the love and and 
admiration of a groom for the bride is what's written there. It's a new Jerusalem. God has united the Old Testament and the New Testament. Israel and the church are brought together in one place to dwell with God for eternity. There are a few things missing, not that we'll miss anything, but note there's no temple, no natural light, and no night. Since God himself dwells personally with his people, there's no need for a temple or some other type of gathering place. We have all of heaven to enjoy with God. His glory is there as well. In fact, it says that the the sun and the moon and the stars can't even compare. There'll be no sun, no moon, no stars because there is an eternal radiance of God, a glory that will outshine any type of light source. And lastly, night, often a symbol of death, of of sin and of sorrow. There'll be no, no more night. There's no place for these things in heaven. They remove from the city forever. We will be with God forever. The gates will never be shut. And we, God's people, will have 24-7 access to the city and to him. From across the renewed universe, we have heaven to dwell finally in eternity and, and, and infinitely with God. This is what will happen. I said I would tell you, this is what is going to happen. At least I believe it's so. I believe this is a future for us. I have no fear in the future because hope wins. God's plan is to dwell with us for eternity. It's his promise, and he's always kept his promises. I look forward to seeing my earthly father in heaven, but more importantly, I look forward to seeing my heavenly father. He's made a place for us, and we will go there to be with him forever. I look forward to seeing you both, all of you, there. Thank you.